I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Tonight is a really special event for us here at the shop, um, not only because we're delighted to welcome um, Anthea Bell, the translator of both Hergé and W.G. Sebald, um, not only because we're celebrating the Feast of St. Jerome, the, pa- the patron saint of translators, and International Translation Day, which takes place on Sunday, but also because tonight heralds the start of um, our new world literature series. At the bookshop, we've been offering a platform to literature and translation since um, we started our World Literature Weekend in, in 2009. And we're really, really glad that this can t- continue in the form of, uh, of a World Literature series of monthly events um, and for, for readers and translation workshops for translators. Uh, you'll hear more about it in a second and more, too, about our guests tonight, Anthea Bell, who will be in conversation with Daniel Hahn. So I will be brief and do no more than hand you over... Um, and ask you uh, to join me in welcoming Nicholas Spice, the publisher of the London Review of Books. Um, this is a sort of cantilevered meal fay introduction. Laura <laughs> introduces me, I introduce Daniel, Daniel introduces Anthea, and eventually Anthea will introduce um, <laughs> But we will actually have time for a little bit of a discussion <laughs> in the middle of this. It's very good of you to come this evening. Uh, we are absolutely delighted and greatly honoured to have with us Anthea Bell, who is indisputably one of the greatest translators of the age. She will be talking tonight to Daniel Hahn, who is National Programme Director of the British Centre for Literary Translation. Daniel is himself a prolific translator, having translated and published some 15 works from Spanish, Portuguese and French, most recently The Investigation by Philippe Claudel and The Polish Boxer by Eduardo Halfon. Now, Eduardo Halfon will himself be appearing here in what is actually, technically speaking, the inaugural event of the World Literature Series next month on the 26th of October, and we hope you will come to that. It should be an exciting event since it's one of our live translation events where two translators, uh, as it were, compete in the um, presence of an author. I'm going to have a go at trying to tell these people outside to keep their voices down. If you hear me being torn limb from limb, you kind of rescue me. So I'll just go and do that before we start. I'll hand over now to Daniel. I'll just pop out here and ask 
I don't want to start. I want to just sit very, very quietly and see if we can hear what's happening outside. <laughs> Nothing we're saying here is going to be as, as amusing as the conversation outside. Um, good evening. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, as Laura mentioned, it's International Translation Day on Sunday. Um, saint Jerome is our, our patron saint, those of us who translate. Um, and so we celebrate translation on, uh, on or around St. Jerome's Day. Um, one of the things celebrating translation means is uh, translators get to come out of their little uh, very dark and dingy cupboards in which they live and work very, very quietly out of everybody's way um, and emerge sort of blinking into the public, uh, public gaze. Um, we, are sort of, we are sort of expected to be... I'm not sure who expects this anymore. Clearly not you because you're here. But somebody somewhere, I think, still has this idea that translators are meant to be, uh, well, I was going to say seen and not heard, not even seen. Neither seen nor heard, but somehow producing these things which we pretend were written by other people. Um, so this is the day in which we uh, stand up and go, look, look, it's us. Um, and look, look, it's us really means look, look, it's her. Um, when we when we celebrate the, the profession of the translator and the, and the, the work that translators do, it's, there, there is no one person, there's no one embodiment, if you like, of our profession uh, more fitting to be at the centre of that conversation than, than Anthea Bell. Um, I introduced Anthea at an event uh, a few months ago in which I said that she was, uh, without question, indisputably the most prestigious and experienced and, and uh, respected uh, translator in the country and there was a little voice next to me saying we said uh, I dispute it um, this was Anthea is the only person who doesn't think Anthea is the most distinguished and uh, experienced and wonderful person uh, translator we have in our profession um, but all the rest of us uh, think that she is something really really extraordinary I'm not going to spend too long to uh, introducing her I'll say a few brief things um only one of them is to say I, I just discovered in conversation when we were chatting now that Anthea has never won the Scott Moncrief Award uh, and I mention that because it's easier to tell you that than to tell you all the things she has won I think the Scott Moncrief is the only award she's entitled to that she hasn't got um, and it's quicker to tell you that than to tell you all the ones here and in the US um, that she's won she's won all of the others uh, in some cases several times also an OBE, also an honorary doctorate from uh, UEA. She translates from French and from German, uh, a, a range of, of things that, as Laura suggested, one thing we might talk about when we talk about the, the variety of her work is what the opposite poles are. Is it from Asterix to Freud, or do we say from Asterix to Austerlitz, <laughs> or do we say the whole range of things from uh, A is for Austerlitz to Z is for Zweig. Um, there's an extraordinary range of, of, of very different kind of things that Anthea uh, is accomplished doing. Um, we're going to be talking, uh, we have, uh, we're going to be aiming to finish at 8.30, so we, Anthea and I will talk for a while, there'll be plenty of time for you to mm -hmm. ask questions afterwards, so do uh, have that in <coughs> mind as you, as you listen to us. Um, I was going to start by asking Anthea um, I want to start with, with beginnings of things. I was going to start by asking you how you became a translator, but actually I want to start with an earlier beginning and ask you what kind of child you were. Were you a booky sort of child? I was a very booky child. I can't remember not being able to read. I do remember learning. I remember the book I had to learn to read. Mr. Pig is a man. He has a dog. <laughs> and, and it, it was, was supplied to... Um, my parents were friends of the eminent Frank and Queen Elivis, an unlikely 
set of friends, but they'd been introduced by a cousin of my father's who rejoiced in the lovely name of Carlos Peacock and was one of the art experts taken in by the fraud Tom Keating, wasn't it? Yes. Um, Carlos became an an alleged expert on Samuel Palmer and fell completely for the hoaxes. But um, my parents got to know the Levises. Um, The great Dr. Levis said that my father's books were naive, but naive in the right kind of way, which (laughs) delighted him. (laughs) And and just post-war time... There were no books for children to be had in deepest East Anglia, where we lived. And my parents sent country produce to Cambridge to the Levises, and they sent back books for us children, including Mr. Pegg is a man, he has a dog. And Queen Elevis even sent me, when I was eight, my copy of The Hobbit, which was generous of her because she had no opinion whatsoever of Tolkien as a literary critic. And indeed, when I was um, doing Oxford Entrance, said to my mother, tell Anthea not to worry if she doesn't get into Oxford. Oxford English is no good. (laughs) But I wanted to go because it taught the sort of thing, or you could learn on the English course there, about the origins of the English language. And I do like the roots of things and to see how the language developed. But you, do, you went for an English degree, not for a languages degree. Yes, I so did. what I you studied no, was English. I had no notion of being a translator. I mean, I might have thought it would suit me for the simple reason that I did A-levels, English, French, German, and I wanted to do Latin as well. And my school kept on at me, saying, you must drop German and do Latin A-level, or you will never get to Oxford. Because in the English course, you had to pass an a Latin unseen in those days. I stuck to my guns. I sat in on the Latin classes. It was ridiculous. I could have done Latin off the top of my head. <laughs> but um, I, I was absolutely right, because I don't think anybody would have paid me over these years for translating Latin. The German was much more useful. Yes, so I, I, but I just went on. It was a difficult choice to make, modern languages or English. But there was this course that I particularly fancied. And I'm not the only one in our profession with a degree not in a foreign language or a modern one. John Brown John, same languages as me, he read classics at Oxford. Sarah Ardizzoni, much younger than either John or me, read English at Oxford. It was German, the one which you clung to. German was the one which got you into translation. Yes, it was, yes. Um, because um, I was... My, my mother and father-in-law didn't like the idea of my doing a further degree and thought I would not then be a good wife and ultimately mother. And it's very hard to imagine a young woman knuckling under these days. But I owed them, I did owe them, because... I am not Jewish, and they were liberal Jewish, and my lovely father-in-law had been brought up Orthodox, and it must have been very hard for them when their only son married out. And I really did feel I owed them, so I trotted off to Pittman's like a good little girl, learned shorthand and typing. And the typing has been wonderfully useful. (laughs) Um, And then uh, my then-husband worked in what was then the National Book League, 
and somebody walked in and said, anybody knows somebody who can give me an opinion on a German children's book? And my husband said, yes, I guess my wife could. And I didn't like it much, I remember. But that was the beginning of the grapevine. And once you start reading for publishers, and then you translate a book, that's when the grapevine operates. You, you find the same, I'm sure, mm. Danny, yes. So the first book you actually translated, after reading a few mm. things and not liking them very mm -hmm. much, what was the first book you actually were asked to translate, got a contract to translate, and, and did... Uh, it was a book by a dear old boy, he's still, still alive, Ottfried Preussler, Der Kleine Wassermann, The Little Water Sprite, and uh, the Robert Hodson Plots books. And his best one, it's called Krabat, which is the name of the hero. And it is a very powerful folktale adaptation. And when I was translating four years ago, Julia Frank's I dislike the English title of it so much that I can hardly bring myself to say it. But um, it should translate as the Noonday Witch because that is she, the folklore character of the title, the Midday Lady, is exactly the same character as the one in Vorjak's tone poem, The Noonday Witch. And I proved it to the publisher's editors. I found a, a 19th century... German lyric poet who wrote a poem telling exactly Vorjak's story entitled Dimashatsram. But anyway, I got to know Yulia when she had... There was one of those occasions at a translator's college. The German one is in Strelen, near the Dutch border. And we... It's the author with as many as possible of his translators... And I found that she had read old Preussler as a child and comes from the part of the country where those particular folk legends arise, mm. uh, the corner between former East Germany and Poland, which has not a Serbian, a Sorbian uh, ethnic tradition. And so that was interesting. Thinking about that first book, the Preussler book you did... Um, this was the first thing you translated. Was it easy? Was it something you immediately thought, this is something I can do? Yes, it was actually, Danny. And as I started saying, I very easily uh, go off at a tangent, but um, I might have had a glimmering because for my French and German A-levels, the translation into English paper went so quickly I was left with half an hour free time at the end of each and I wished I could hand it in and say, look, let me add this half hour on to the essay papers. You wrote essay papers on German and French literature in those days. Mm. So um, that, that was a sign to me that I was, I was uh, suited to it. Mm. Now, I mean, I, I'm not going to ignore all of the stuff between then and now, but I want to jump forward to now and to... <laughs> ask you how you decide how you I'm sure you were offered a lot more things to translate than you actually do how do you choose which is a book for you um, I try not to take on too much with conspicuously little success I must say but how, I, I, I'm just going to interrupt you and ask this question knowing that all the translators in the room are going to gasp when, I, when you, you, you answer it how much do you translate how many books a year I don't know it depends, it depends on the length of the books and the degree of um, research required. Um, I had a lovely time earlier this year 
translating last year's German Book Prize winner, which is a delightful book about four generations in East Germany, and it's been compared with some justification to an East German Buddenbrooks. And people think East Germany, ooh, grey, grim, gritty, this will be no fun. But it is one of the most entertaining books I've ever translated. And you know when you read something like that that you would like to translate it. So it's important that... It's important that you find a some personal connection or that it just has to be good or that... I'm just trying to... Because I presume you're also offered things that are good that you still don't do. Yes, and, and I... And you have to make some determination between... And I have just actually pulled out, just at the right time, from a book which shall be nameless because it's a good book, I loved it, but the author and I had very different ideas about its translation and I could see we were going to be at odds throughout and this is not a promising start. <laughs> No, I shall at some point be asking you about working with authors because mm-hmm. uh, every translator has uh, has stories. Mm-hmm. Just leave it at that for the moment, and we shall come back to this one at some point. <laughs> Will you say something about about the the, the process? You, someone offers you a book to translate. You've you've read it and you've decided this is the one for you. Can you describe just briefly um, the process of reading it, of drafts, of editing? How what does that look like? That Um, Well, of course, I never, never agree to translate a book without reading it. I know two translators who do. One English, one Dutch, because if it's fiction, they say it makes it more fun not to know what the end is. I would be absolutely terrified in case I didn't like it, in case I thought it was no good when I got into it. But my favourite method is to do a quick first draft all the way through, but sometimes people want it in bits. And, um, in bits, do you mean you, they actually want you to deliver a polished, you know, the first 20,000 words? As and then polished the as possible, and I always stipulate I may have to go back in the light of what comes later. Something that you may not have noticed in the first reading, but it does arise as you work through. In the detail of translation, don't you find it gives you the most detailed view of a book anybody can possibly get, which is nice. But, um, so you'll do, a, you'll do a quick first draft? Yes, I will, and then th- that is great fun. And then I will revise and revise and probably revise again. And at some point, I've got to print it out on paper. I am not... Well, I am computerised. I was uh, on an evening with Joyce Crick, the eminent translator of Kafka, and Will Self at City University earlier this year. And the young lecturer showing me round the labyrinthine corridors of City University to where we were going to be asked me, hobbling along with a stick as I was, do you translate on a computer? I said, yes. Um, I was one of the first ever to do so, I think, in 1986. And I know when it was because I was translating the first edition of Stefan Aust's book on the Bader-Meinhof terrorists. And... um, the people from whom I bought my computer thought this was such an odd thing for anybody to want to do that they said, oh, could they take along somebody to take publicity photographs of me with their nice equipment? <laughs> and I've got them to this day. And the book on my copy holder is the Stefan Alst, first published in Germany in 1985. How much of a difference has it made, the, the post-computer and the pre-computer? Oh, a lot profession? of difference, I mean. 
I remember the ghastly frustration of carbon copies and uh, correcting through carbon copies. Mm. And once, way back, before I had a computer, before the computer age, I was translating a book in which the word meteorologist appeared a great deal. Now, that is a very difficult word for a touch typist to, to type. We're all imagining it, aren't we? We're, we're all and you, discreetly you, you, trying to... You, you, you really have to have a keyboard in front of you because you're, you can't remember how the letters go if you're a touch typist. But there's too much here. Yeah. In, in, and um, I thought, and it seemed like a pipe dream, wouldn't it be lovely if I could just type one letter, one key, and the whole word would come out? <laughs> and now, of course, you can. I always, at the beginning of translating a novel in particular, I make myself one-touch shortcuts to the names of all the characters. Yeah. You mentioned uh, one of the things that determines how long it takes you to, to translate a book. One of the factors you said was how much research you have to do, for yes. example. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, first of all, that's one thing which has changed tremendously since... Uh, I imagine you do most of your research online. Indeed, yes, yes. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, so long as you don't believe everything that Wikipedia says, <laughs> or Romopedia, as a Belgian academic mm. I know tells his students. Um, do you like the research part? Is, is, is the kind of answering those little questions, is that part of it? Yes, it's quite satisfying, yes. You find things out that you didn't know before, mm. but... Oh, Krishna Winston, the American translator, said to me years ago, Google the translator's friend, and it's mm. true. You also have a, presumably a, a, a kind of growing, a huge and growing library of, of actual books on subjects which are yeah. <laughs> which keep, keep cropping up in, in translations. Yes, well, as I said in Hay, I think, and as I said in print, and they did little snippets about uh, what their speakers thought about literature and mm. freedom of speech. If you translate from German, and I think I see Sean at the back there, you um, inevitably acquire a really depressing bookshelf of books full about the Holocaust and the Nazi period. And I know a lovely American translator, Margot Betardembo, and um, she got so tired of reading endless, endless Holocaust books that she asked the American publisher for whom she was reading to send her something different and they sent her a book about Chernobyl. (laughs) She had entirely forgotten to specify something a bit more cheerful. Yes, something funny. Yes. (laughs) You you said you you do a quick first draft and then you'll edit and edit and you will... There'll be a point at which you print out. Yes, and of course at some point I will have gathered up all my queries for the author. Right. Mm. But before, I mean, before you get to that point, when you're, edit, when you're just kind of doing mm-hmm. your, your sort of tinkering with draft mm-hmm. after draft, what are you looking for? What, what, how do you know when you've got it? How do you know when you've arrived somewhere? I'm looking for when it doesn't sound, when it sounds right in English. That's all I can say. Um, I am not of the school of the visible translator. Except once a year. International <laughs> Translation Day, not become, but normally. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, uh, the profession is a paradox. We try to be as anonymous as possible. Hmm. But naturally enough, I mean, the Translators Association has an online group, which um, 
We often complain about the lack of recognition given to translators, but I cannot object to it because I think that if you pass unnoticed, Mm. that is a compliment. How do you feel about book reviews, for example, that talk about um, something you've translated and talk about this beautiful voice that some person who actually doesn't speak English mm-hmm. has m- sort of miraculously created mm-hmm. in English and the humour and the rhythm and the warmth of the tone and you're not mentioned anywhere. Ah, well, that, it shows I've done my job if that's how the reviewer feels. There is, there is always this conflict, though, isn't there? Because mm. on the one hand, you think, actually, you know, a little bit of ego mm. would be <laughs> quite nice for someone to say I did something good. At the same time, you don't want to be... Uh, conspicuous. No. What Danny, I overdid it the other day. Danny kindly mentioned the OBE, which was a huge surprise, and I took it as a compliment to the profession as a whole. But I do not flash it about. Uh, and indeed, I usually describe myself as a literary translator, only to mock myself off from the people who translate um, leaflets with tec- technical gadgets which was the reason for somebody once asking me, tell me, Anthea, why is all translation so bad? (laughs) But um, I was the other day, the only time I put the OBE after my name, I did it witnessing passport applications for my next-door neighbour's son, his wife, and his two small children, uh, one of which is his stepson. And uh, the authorities are very suspicious of the stepson's birth family, with good reason. The social services managed to get all contact of the little boy with his birth family, his birth father and his uh, birth paternal grandparents, who did something so reprehensible, I think it was to do with child abuse, that um, the social services had no hesitation in saying, right, the boy doesn't have to go and see his dad anymore, which was a very good thing. And so I thought I'd do my uh, neighbour's son and the little boy a bit of good by adding OBE to my signature, witnessing these forms. And back came from my neighbours a very suspicious letter. There was no record of a passport for anyone called Anthea Bell Obe. And and they didn't think translator sounded very well qualified. I left the literary out. And would I please write a letter explaining myself? So I did. Or get a new witness with a proper job, if possible. Exactly, yes. My neighbours thought it was hilarious. (laughs) Yes, we may have a little bit bit of a way to go in terms of uh, respect for this profession. But we're we're possibly getting there. When you're, when you're talking about uh, something which... T- you're doing your edits and you're looking mm-hmm. for something which sounds right in English. Mm-hmm. One of the things which, of course, is, is very significant, especially for someone who mm-hmm. has a, a body of work like yours, is that is not the same thing for one book um, as it is no. for another book. No. So what we're talking about is voice, I yeah, presume. Yeah, indeed, yes. And it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to describe what translation is like without using metaphor, as, um, as Edith, um, I forgot Edith Grossman, Grossman yeah. yes, says in her lovely book, What is Translation For? And um, it's very, very difficult to hit the right note the whole time. And I, my metaphor is walking a tightrope. But a lot of people compare it to acting, 
and the voice is what we're all looking for. People talk in terms of uh, performing and in terms of conducting. There was something in uh, a magazine a couple of weeks ago, which I think you read, which used a cooking metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something which is absolutely common to every translator. Yes. When you ask them what they do, they yes. say they're translators. And then you get the kind of blank look. Yes, exactly. The next question saying, but what actually, I mean, what's that like, really? <laughs> um, so, uh, disc- I mean, uh, defining what a voice is, this is not really a fair question to ask you. Um, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you mean by finding a voice? What does, what does that mean? It means trying to get yourself into the author's mind as far as possible. And, of course, finding the right style in English to suit it. Uh, not everything goes into English with equal ease. My bilingual French niece once asked whether she thought in French or English, said it depends what I'm thinking about, which was a very good reply. Um, but, uh, I've translated a lot of Stefan Zweig for Pushkin Press, who have been leading a sort of revival of his work. And his he has a favourite adjective, and it is dumpf, which means all sorts of things in German, dull, hollow, muted, dark. Um, He seems to use it a lot of the time to mean sombre, whether metaphorically or really sombre. And every time I see it, I think, Stefan, here comes your adjective again, what sort of a dumpf is it this time? (laughs) And I can't get in touch with him because, alas, he committed suicide in 1942. Presumably there is something, when you're talking about finding a voice, there is... Uh, something which I don't know whether it's easier, but in, in some ways possibly about a, a writer like Zweig, of whom you've done quite a lot of mm-hmm. books. So do you sort of slip into a voice when you're going back to a writer you've worked on before? Um, not with him, because he is he looks so easy to translate on the surface. It all seems very limpid, but in fact, I think because he cut and cut and cut and cut, it is very condensed. Mm. He cut so much that he let only one complete full-length novel, leave him, ready for publication. And another, actually unfinished, has been found since and is published as a full-length novel, but I am not sure that if... It's the one known as The Post Office Girl. I am not sure that if he had lived and gone back to it, he wouldn't have done his cutting-cutting on that, which results in his writing some very fine novellas. Mm. But they're not as easy to translate as they look. Does it get easier having done him before, or does or does that not help? I don't think it particularly helps. I was um, corresponding with a copy editor of one story in a volume of four novellas or short stories that will be coming out next year, and I thought, as I went through this one, his language can be quite strange sometimes, and it won't always be strange in just the same way. But But... You then have to produce something which is strange in English? Um, it all depends. I mean, if a copy editor queries something, and I was working with a very, very good copy editor, uh, who has come, I think, with the new regime at Pushkin Press, and I very much enjoyed corresponding with her. I do like a good copy editor. <laughs> you know, I have had some bad experiences with copy editors, the sort who look around and think, ah... Oh, 
This woman may know the language from which she is translating, but she needs me with my brand-new English degree to put her English right. And they put it wrong as often as not. I think the worst I ever had was the simplest of sentences. It was in one of Cornelia Funke's children's books. It was about a dragon. And the German said literally, and I translated literally, the dragon had laid his head on his paws. And the copy editor crossed out laid and put lane. And so then you have to spend five minutes of your valuable time explaining the difference between a transitive and an intransitive <laughs> verb, two verbs which sound superficially much like each other, mm-hmm. uh, and um, have different past participles, and which is appropriate in which mm. case. Presumably they, a copy editor would not, make that, uh, would not make that kind of change so readily if you had just been, uh, as it were, a normal writer of English. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I think they do, you know. Yes. <laughs> I remember... I was, I was assuming it was, it was just, you know, it's persecution complex, that, oh, everyone's terrible translators, but do you think it's just... No, I remember um, the, the, the writer Joan Aiken, not, not long before her death, she had an amusing piece in the press about the, the depredations of a copy editor on her work. So it's, it happens all the time. But, but a, a good constructive copy editor is absolutely marvellous, and I've been working with a wonderful one at Penguin. I remembered her as soon as I saw her name, and I said, didn't you copy edit the new Penguin Freud, or some of them? And she did mine, she said yes. Hmm. <laughs> one of the things that, uh, when, you're, when you're finding your voice, or finding a voice for mm-hmm. your writer, one of the things which uh, seems difficult, or people find difficult, is... When you're dealing with, I'm not sure what to call it, uh, what you might call non-standard uh, language or dialect <laughs> mm-hmm. or slang, are there, are there tricks for, uh, for getting around that kind of thing? Do you find an alternative dialect in English? You, that is very dicey if you, um, if you try to replace a German or French regional dialect with an English one, the point comes. And in as this, I faced this quite early on in the Asterix books because there are quite a few regional French dialects in there. And I think in one of the very early ones for a southerner, there was a shot at a, a stagey English mummerset dialect but it was only for one frame. Mm. And I soon realised that if you've got somebody in Marseille playing boule and speaking with the accent of the area, and you give him broad Yorkshire, for instance, the point comes where that in itself destroys the whole illusion of translation. And the reader will think, how come this guy in the south of France is talking Yorkshire? (laughs) And... um, well, one, one of the reasons is because it will then read very differently to readers in Yorkshire as it will to readers in yes, Texas yes, or readers in yes, Sydney. Yes, yes, But um, our mutual friend Michael Henry Hyme and I agree that with, uh, with just not quite non-standard language, and many Germans speak both High German and a local dialect and will switch easily from one to the other. This seldom happens with us, but um, in fact I know uh, a friend who had to entertain a party of German marine biologists 
in Aberdeen, where there was a conference on the fisheries industry, I think. And the German marine biologist said, could the Aberdonians please be asked to speak high English? Because they couldn't understand the Scottish accent. <laughs> I don't know how they got out of that one. But you can do it. I've heard you use the phrase, uh, I think it's non-specific demotic. That, that's my course, yes, right. yes. And what, what does that mean? What, can you give it an example? It means, well, yes, uh, we, we read them books. He, he done good, of course, the famous footballing mm. one. That sort of thing. Just a little bit of bad grammar that's an illiterate, or partly illiterate, or, or, or a non-speaker, normally, of standard English. But which well, doesn't we, locate we, it specifically in exactly, Glasgow or yes, in the yes. East End or... We, we was doing this, that or the other. And you can hear it all the time, actually. You listen to a vox pop thing on the BBC mm. and a lot of the vox pop people, oh, and they interject like into everything. Yeah. Presumably this happens a lot, not just in books which are written in, in non, non-standard or non, non-high, mm. um, but this happens in dialogue as well. Is dialogue... A challenge? Is dialogue fun to translate? I love dialogue, but if it's in in dialogue, it is so difficult that sometimes it just doesn't seem worth attempting. Mm. But, um, I love translating dialogue on the whole. Um, it's not something that everybody's good at. No, no, it's not. And I spent nine years as one of the jury on the panel for the Schlegel Teak translation from German prize and I'm sorry you've heard this tale before (laughs) every year regular as clockwork we got a translation by a translator and it was always fiction and I groaned when I saw it coming because I knew the narrative passages would be fine no problem but come the dialogue it would be pure undiluted wood (laughs) and uh, he, he shouldn't have been translating fiction. Mm. Would have been fine with something, with non-fiction, I'm sure. It talked about uh, dialect uh, and slang and non-standard mm. and also the, the certain challenges to, to dialogue. What, what do you find hardest to translate? Um, if, it, um, if it gets long-winded, rather, I must say I do remember reading... It's a book that I know Sean would like to translate because he said so three years ago, or was it four years ago, um, the winner of the German book prize, Der Turm, which is a thousand pages long. And I think if it hadn't been so long, it's a good book. But if it hadn't been as long as that and coincided with the credit crunch beginning in publishing, (coughs) it would surely have found a publisher. But it did take a bit of wading through. I read it for, I forget who I read it for, and I, I think I read it for Bloomsbury, and I uh, said yes, but it was qualified, you know. And they got, I think, four reports on it. Mm. And mine was one of the more or less pro ones, but there were, the two were pro and two were con. Mm. Did you read it for them, Sean? Yes. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reading for fun. But there are depths of reference in that book and difficult stuff, um, you know, intertwining with um, German literary culture. Right. 
And but then, there is some kind of difficulty. I, I'm, I'm actually going to, in a moment, move on to talk about Asterix, and this is a very mm-hmm. very useful mm-hmm. connection, because there are some kinds of difficulty which are very appealing, aren't there? Oh, yes. I mean, there's yes. some difficulty which you look at and think, I, I can never yeah. do that. But aren't there some kind of difficulty which you look at and think, right, I'm going to get my, get my teeth. Yes, exactly, this yes, really yes indeed. There yes. is something appealing. Yes, there is, there? yes. And if I ever... I. I steer clear of translating poetry because I don't feel I can do the serious stuff. I can do the light, I can do the comic, I can do the bad on purpose, <laughs> like the effusions of the cat in E.T.A. Hoffman's uh, The Life and Opinions of the Tomcat Moore, because the cat thinks that his poetry is wonderful and, of course, it's absolutely terrible, <laughs> and that is quite fun to translate. But you think you can't do the, I the think good I, stuff? Why not? No, well, I... I I'm wary of myself, and as I mentioned to you just now, Adam Freudenheim and I now of Adam's bought Pushkin Press, and we are discussing, perhaps translating a book by Stefan Zweig, potted little potted bits of history, fictionalized history, Sternstunden, star moments of mankind, and I have been reading it in the train on the way up. I got it on my Kindle. It's wonderful what you can get on a Kindle. And um, I um, read the one which I thought, I'd only had summaries of them before, appealed to me about Goethe and his last love, Ulrika von Levetsov. And the fascinating thing to me is that he proposed to her. They could have been married between Goethe's date of birth and her date of death. There was a full century and a half. Mm. He was in his 70s when he proposed her and her mother said, oh my dear, what an honour, but do think carefully. (laughs) Mother was a sensible woman, I think, and Ulrika thought (coughs) carefully and turned him down. But um, Stefan Zweig has a story about this which quotes a lot of Goethe in it. Now, even David Constantine our matchless translator of Goethe into English says that he is difficult. Whereas a bit of Heine slips into English, I think, with quite suspicious ease. <laughs> it's quite fun. But, uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you do? I mean, if you end up translating this, this right, with big chunks of Goethe in it, do you, do you just accept that, well, I don't really translate poetry, but I make an exception? Well, or, uh, oh, you... yes, I would get down to it, but um, Adam doesn't propose to do all. Uh, this book, it collected extra bits as the years went on and um, it has 14 or 15 at the end and I think Adam wants to cut it down to 10 at least So all the ones with poetry and you can immediately (laughs) excise immediately But I I am scared of poetry I can do nonsense first I've done some Christian (laughs) Morgenstern which led to American Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
and editors saying, but this doesn't make sense. Whereupon I kept saying, no, he's a nonsense poet. Yeah. You know, That's right, it think, doesn't make sense, thank you. Think Lewis Carroll, you yeah. know, think Edward Lear. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Asterix for, for a number mm. of reasons. Uh, I have a lot of friends mm-hmm. who know nothing about mm-hmm. translation, um, and you were the only translator any of them has heard of. Obviously, they've heard of me because I'm their friend, but that would be weird otherwise. Um, but apart from me, uh, you're the only translator they've heard of, and it's because of Asterix. Um, this will not surprise you to know. I'm sure they have read other things of yours, but Asterix is the one which makes uh, the non-translators know know who you are. Can you say something, first of all, about how you ended up with, with the Asterix job, which is the job of which we are all <laughs> most jealous? You cannot, I cannot describe to you how jealous we all are of this job. Uh, well, it was, again, accident. Um, no English translations were published until a full decade after the first French ones appeared in 1959. It was 1969 when the first English ones came up. The reason was that two or three publishers at least had said the series was untranslatable. And then... Because of the wordplay and the puns, yes. And um, <coughs> uh, Rockhampton Press for whom my ex-husband worked and who did quite a lot. That was the name of the children's imprint of Hodder and Stoughton at the time. And uh, they decided to have a go. And they asked me and the family friend, Derek Hockridge, who was a lecturer in French, to have a go. The idea was that Derek would be the expert on all the French topical jokes, of which there were many in the early books. And I would find the English and that's about how it worked out. Um, and they have never quite... They have crossed the channel, and they've crossed all the seas between France and the rest of Europe, northern Europe. I believe the Russians do them now. Mm. They have never quite crossed the Atlantic. And all my friends in the States say, oh, but we love our Asterix, our kids read him. But they are all, they're in the book trade, or they're academics, or they're publishers, or they're teachers. Now, in this country, I am in the throes of awful upheaval, having my house redecorated at the moment. And the decorators seize upon the Asterix books. I used to read these when I was a kid. They've got a vast appeal in Europe which they don't seem to have in the States. Well, in this country, you would assume that people would have... There would be a certain kind of familiarity with references and that kind of thing. You would, yes. I think part of it is that we have got a lot of history. The French have got a lot of history. The Americans have not got as much history to laugh at themselves about. Mm. And we laugh at 1066 and all that, the way the French laugh at jokes about our noble ancestors, the Gauls. Mm. And we are ready to poke fun at our ancestors or 1066 and all that. Is Asterix... This is a really silly question. Is it as much fun to translate as it seems? Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's quite I knew hard. it. I knew it. <laughs> it is. I mean, you get a first draft saying, gloomily joke needed here, or new <laughs> song needed here. <laughs> and after a bit, some idea will come. And it's all cross-referenced and... Picking up references, oh, you know, out of uh, double meanings in dictionaries. It is the closest I have ever come 
to compiling cryptic crosswords, which is one of the things my late father did. He was the first ever compiler of the Times crossword puzzle. Because, you're, because a lot of the time you're not translating something, you're not carrying something across that exists, no. you're, you're building a new thing. Indeed, yes. And the French originals uh, have quite simple jokes along the lines of uh, the slaves are revolting and Caesar can say and you can say that again um, and uh, everybody will get those but you will get long cultural references um, the last one for which the late René Garcini wrote the story the scenario as they call it was Asterix in Belgium and it has many references as battle rages to Victor Hugo in Les Châtiments and he's writing about the Battle of Waterloo and there are take-off quotes uh, in the stage directions to the frames as it were and you would have thought though there was a little bit in English it's Byron on the Duchess of Richmond's Ball there was a sound of revelry by night but there wasn't enough there for the purposes of the translation and you would have thought that somebody would have written a great epic about it. And in fact, Stefan Zweig, whom I've been reading just now, mentions Walter Scott's epic poem. I don't know if you read it. I haven't read it. If you look in, it was called The Field of Waterloo, and if you look in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, you will not find anything by Scott out of that poem quoted, but you will find a little verse by Anon, which goes, On Waterloo's ensanguined plain, full many a gallant man was slain, but none by sabre or by shot fell half so flat as Walter Scott. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not well known, it was utterly unusable. If people aren't going to recognise the poem from which you're quoting, that's no good. (laughs) Do you sometimes have to admit defeat? Can you sometimes just not find the thing which is going to replace the thing you're replacing. Yes, but if that happens, then you look for something that <coughs> will go in, that will come in easily out of English. Mm. And an obvious example is that we can use in English, to good effect, the title of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Mm. And a Roman centurion looks at his disgraceful men who have been doing a beer tasting uh, to find which barrel has the magic potion in it. And they are falling about, hiccuping in Latin in English, hic, hic, hoc, you can do that. And uh, the, um, no, it's the Roman governor says, uh, and um, what do you think you're doing, declining and falling about like that as they fall about dead drunk? And that sort of little extra gift makes up for what you can't do, I hope. So you, you, you compensate. I hope, yes, it's, yes. Did you, you mentioned Goshini who wrote the... the the words for, for yes. the, the, the first of these books. Did you know him? Did you work with him? Did he have yes. English? Oh, his English was absolutely excellent. He had been brought up in Argentina, which uh, a lot of English is spoken there. And um, <coughs> his English was marvellous. And um, he looked through the English translations and um, he seldom made any suggestions, but if he did, they were pure gold. Mm. And when he died, now his partner, Albert Derzé, is strictly monolingual. 
Uh, I don't know if he has any Italian. His name is of Italian origin. Mm. And, um, whereas Gossin is, is of Polish origin. Mm. So these two archetypal Frenchmen. But um, he decided that he would go on writing the stories by himself. And when it came to turning them in, uh, he sent them out to a translation agency in Paris. I was very doubtful about this at first. But fortunately, they have had for years, looking through the asterisks, one's a lovely lady called Penelope. I knew knew she was English because there were no accents on her name. (laughs) And um, she knows exactly how my mind works. And there was a colloque on asterisks uh, three years ago, four years ago, I forget which, 2009, yes, uh, three years ago, uh, celebrating asterisks being 50 in uh, France. And uh, she turned up at that, so we met at last, which was very nice. <laughs> when you have a writer like like Gautini, who has very good English, uh, are, there, are there disadvantages as well as advantages to having writers who have English? Uh, it depends. Um, I have to say, most of the trouble I have had has been not with Gossini, but with some French writers. Mm. I had one... It was um, the Gilles Grosier. It was a very good book. I loved it. Uh, but he wanted everything to be as literally close to the French as possible and kept saying to me, can't you say this in English? And I kept saying, no, actually, I'm afraid you can't. Uh, just like another writer, I had a writer of a book on pop economics. I got my arm twisted by my dear friend, the late Barbara Rice, into translating this. And the author a very strange lady. She thought her English was better than it was. Her spoken English was very good, but she looked all through my translation of her book, popular book on economics and unemployment, and um, said, oh, this won't do, it's too far from the French, and she... And Did some... you say that's because it's in English? Oh, well, I could have done. <laughs> she and a friend of hers in France got down to it. Uh, the publisher was Politic Press. And they sent it in, and Polity Press sent it to me. And I looked at it, and I blinched, because all the sentences were <coughs> great crescendos of ooh and ah and alas. And, uh, and Which all, we do so all, naturally in Always tailing off into the three-dot ellipsis, so beloved of the French. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't put my name on this. I've got a reputation to protect. And I said to the publisher, I tell you what, put on it translated under the guidance of the author. And the author thought that was wonderful <laughs> and was very happy with it. <laughs> and all the translators looking at that book, looking at, well, I know what that means. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> one, one writer you've translated, and there is one of his books here, mm-hmm. who you, I know, did, did you get a wave copy mm-hmm. of Austerlitz by W.G. Seabold. It's someone you translated who... who lived in England, had English, and I know Indeed. it was involved in the, the process of translation. Yes, yes, he um, took a very close interest, and it was oh, it was lovely talking to Max Zabot, because if there was something that he wanted, and I said, actually, I don't think this is quite what we would say in English. A little boy saying of somebody having a drink, he takes a deep draught of this. Hmm. Although... When I thought about it later, one of my sons, um, on being told by his father when he was about six to pick up his feet, 
um, and walk a bit faster when we were out for a walk, said with great dignity, it's all right, my pace is quickening. I don't know where he picked that up for, but I thought a deep draught in a little boy's mind, mouth would be perceived as not quite mm. right. And um, Max and a tome, for some reason we don't speak of little tomes, we speak of big tomes in English. But a tome in French is any kind of a volume, really. A tome, you use it to suggest something yes, which is waiting. Yes, yes, yes. But um, it was very close collaboration, and he, his English was marvellous after 30 years in mm. this country. He, he was writing poetry in English at the mm. end of his sadly curtailed life. And um, he preferred, actually to go on writing in German. And uh, his German is sometimes considered a bit outdated. It's, it's just his personal style, I think. It wasn't because he was actually aware, he was living away from... No, I, don't, I don't think so, no, no. Uh, but he was, he was uneasy with Germany's past. Would you read a little, a little bit of... of I will, yes, because um, I was reading this Stefan Zweig about Waterloo, in the train coming up and there's a point at which the eponymous narrator this is a book which has actually Max Zebalt has often said not to have written novels but narrative fictions and that can well be said of the others but Austerlitz is a novel within a novel it has a framework narrator and in the book, Austerlitz, the central character, tells his own story to the framework narrator. And at this point, having learnt, as he has not for years, that his real surname is Austerlitz after he was adopted by a Welsh minister and his wife, having come on one of the kinder transport trains, he begins finding out about his name personally, he says. As I was saying, I had never heard the name Austerlitz before that April day in 1949, when Penrith Smith, that was the headmaster of the boarding school where he was, handed me the piece of paper on which he had written it. I couldn't work out the spelling and read the strange term, which sounded to me like some password, three or four times, syllable by syllable, before I looked up and said, Excuse me, sir, but what does it mean? To which Penrith Smith replied, I think you will find it as a small place in Moravia, site of a famous battle, you know. And sure enough, the Moravian village of Austerlitz was discussed at great length during the next school year, for the curriculum in the lower sixth included European history, generally regarded as a complicated and not entirely safe subject so that, as a rule, it was confined to the period from 1789 to 1814, which ended with a great English victory. The master who was to teach us this period, both glorious and terrible, as he often emphasised, was one André Hillary, who had only just taken up his post at Stour Grange, that was the school, after being demobbed, and who, as it soon turned out, was familiar with every detail of the Napoleonic era. Andre Hillary had studied at Oriel College, but had grown up surrounded by an enthusiasm for Napoleon, going back through several generations of his family. 
His father, so he once told me, said Austerlitz, had him baptised André in memory of Marshal Messina, Duke of Rivoli. Hilary could trace the orbit of the Corsican comet, as he put it, across the sky from its very beginning to its extinction in the South Atlantic Ocean, enumerating all the constellations through which it passed and the events and characters on which it cast light at any point of its ascendancy or decline, speaking without any preparation and just as if he had been there himself. That last is an example of one of Max's quite long sentences, mm-hmm. which gives you the fun of of the German subsidiary clause. <laughs> the first book I translated just after, <laughs> after finishing this was a modern German novel in the modern German style, lots of snappy short sentences. Mm-hmm. But, um, to go on a little bit, the Emperor's childhood in Ajaccio, his studies at the military academy of Brienne, the siege of Toulon, the stresses and strains of the Egyptian expedition, and his return over a sea full of enemy ships, the crossing of the great St. Bernard, the battles of Marengo, Jena and Auerstedt, of Eiland, Friedland, of Wagram, Leipzig and Waterloo. Hilary brought it all vividly to life for us, partly by recounting the course of these events, often passing from plain narrative to dramatic descriptions, and then on to a kind of impromptu performance distributed among several different roles, from one to another of which he switched back and forth with astonishing virtuosity, and partly by studying the gambits of Napoleon and his opponents with the cold intelligence of a non-partisan strategist, surveying the entire landscape of those years from above with an eagle eye, as he once, and not without (coughs) pride, remarked. And that was all one long (laughs) sentence from where I began again. Most of us were deeply impressed by Hillary's history lessons, not least, said Austerlitz, because very often, probably owing to his suffering from slipped discs, he gazed them while lying on his back on the floor, nor did we find this at all comic, for it was at such times that Hillary spoke with particular clarity and authority. His undoubted pièce de résistance was the Battle of Austerlitz. He spoke on it at length, describing the terrain, the highway leading east from Brunn to Olmutz, with the hilly Moravian countryside on its left and the Pratzen Heights on its right, the curious cone-shaped mountain which reminded the veterans in the Napoleonic Napoleonic army of the Egyptian pyramids, the villages of Belvitz, Skolnitz and Kobernitz, the game park and pheasant enclosure, the water horse of the Goldbach and the pools and lakes to the south, the French encampment as well as that of the 90,000 allies, which extended over a length of nine miles. Hillary told us, said Austerlitz, how at seven in the morning the peaks of the highest hills emerged from the mist like islands in a sea, and as the day gradually grew brighter over the rounded hilltops, the milky haze in the valleys became noticeably denser. Uh, from which point, of course, the weather, the Battle of Waterloo, of Austerlitz became worse. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I assume most people here have read that book, but if you haven't, uh, there is at least one copy here. So you're going to have to like, rush the stage to buy this one. It's an extraordinary book. It is. Um, you, you, you said something about the, these long sentences and also something about the fact that Sibold had his own sort of distinctive German, which some people thought was mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. To, do with, to do with the... Uh, a time period. You also referred to 
this of short sentences of a lot of contemporary German writing. One thing which I think is quite striking is how many German writers you've translated, contemporary German writers, who are writing German as a second language. I'm thinking, for yes. example, of Sasha Stanislav, who wrote yes. um, How the Soldier Prepared yes. the Gramophone. Yes. Is, is there a difference? Can you feel a well, difference in when you're, when you're translating uh, a second language German or a first language German? When I am translating, yes, I have found, I have <coughs> translated a lovely Turkish-born German author called Akif Perinci, who wrote, it sounds very true, uh, books about a cat detective. They're quite savage books, actually. But he, um, he and I corresponded about cats a lot and about Hoffmann's The Tomcat Myrrh, which he loved as I did. And I was sure, because he writes so much in the Western tradition, that he had to be second-generation Turkish-German. But no, he came to Germany with, uh, at the age of ten or so without a word of German. Sasha Stanisic, immigrant from Bosnia in the early 90s at the time of the awful massacres there, he and his family just got out in time. His mother was a Muslim and his father was not. And they just got out in time. And Sasha arrived aged 14 without a word of German. And assuming the hero of his novel is based on himself, taught himself German at ten pages of the dictionary a day. And he got his first novel on the shortlist of the big German book prize, and it was a lot better, if you ask me, than the one that actually won it that year. And the transla- your translation won the Oxford Weidenfeld Yes, prize. it did, yes. But, um, but he and Akif and Rafik Shami, hmm. whose big novel... The Dark Side of Love is a family saga and a panoramic history of Syria up to the early 1970s when he left it. He doesn't write about Syria later. Mm. He writes about what he knew. And all of them, but less noticeably with Rafik, who's been in Germany longer than the other younger authors, you don't see it till you begin translating but then you find that they have a wider vocabulary than many a native German-born writer. This is very odd, and I would love to know in these computer days if anybody has run something through the vocabularies of people like um, Samuel Beckett and Conrad, Conrad, you know, writing in languages that were not their own. Uh, The Germans find it's worthwhile they have a, a special prize, the Camiso Prize, for Germans writing in German, though it was not their mother tongue. Right. We, um, I'm, I'm going to exercise extraordinary restraint now, because mm-hmm. I would like to just keep asking Anthea questions, but I really ought to stop and let you... Uh, so I'm going to stop asking questions and encourage you to... Uh, there's a hand up already before I even finish my sentence. Excellent. This is going to be nice and easy. I'm just going to point to the lady over there uh, and ask you... Yes, please. There is a microphone. If you hang on just a moment. Take the mic. Um, okay, I'm not to you. Is this working? Uh, the mic. Is it? Yeah. Yes. I want to thank you so much for drawing me into the wonderful world of um, Stefan Zweig and in such a compelling mm. manner... I have a wonderful 90-year-old uh, neighbour who grew up 
uh, German who mm-hmm. grew up in Leipzig mm-hmm. when he was writing, mm-hmm. and she talked so much to me about him, and she said, but I've only got him his books in German. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, well, it's very nice hearing <coughs> about him. And then I went into Daunt's mm-hmm. one day, mm-hmm. and Pushkin Press, you know, they had a great array of all his novels, and I just had such a wonderful time being drawn into his world, and I want to thank you. Mm-hmm. And then I want to ask you about your fairy tales, mm-hmm. um, because I've been hearing about Philip Pullman adapting his um, favourite mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. from Grimm, mm-hmm. 50 of them, mm-hmm. and I wondered... He's not having to translate them, is he? He's obviously, no, no, he's no, not. No. No. So he's, he's taking a translation and adapting yes. it. But it, it's fair enough. I mean, these things are, by definition, common property, aren't yes, they? Yes, yes. Um, no, I just wondered... Um, when the Grimm's collected them, yeah. they, they did edit to a certain extent, mm. and it is very interesting. Wilhelm put in a lot of Christian piety, which wasn't necessarily there before, <laughs> and uh, Ludwig Grimm, the artist brother illustrated some of the, uh, I forget if it was the first edition of which we celebrate the 200th anniversary next year. Well, I think really the two volumes were published uh, 1812 and 1814, so I'd have to look that up to be sure. But, but, but were, were you selective, though, in, in the ones you translated? The, the, the little ones I did for Pushkin Press... Um, yes, I mean, I very much wanted to do the Juniper Tree, which is a wonderful story, and the Robber Bridegroom, which actually has no magic in it, but it has a, a very <coughs> brave heroine, and they both have little verses in which, yes, I like tackling little verses, hmm. especially the one in the Juniper Tree where the, um, the bird into which the murdered boy has transmogrified tells its sad story over and over again. And this allegedly horrific story, I may say, my younger son, when he was seven, found a collected grim in an old-fashioned translation when he was st- where we were staying with my parents. And on the way home in the car next day, he began telling me all about this wonderful story that he had read last night. Mm. And as he talked, he was a proper little ancient mariner. <laughs> and uh, as he went on with the story, it dawned on me that this was the horrific grim tale <coughs> based on the, the legend, really, of the House of Atreus mm. in which the father has served his child baked in a pie or a stew in this case. And my seven-year-old thought it was the best story he'd ever read. <laughs> One of the things that both Grimm and Zweig have in common is that you've translated them and you are not by any means the first translator. No, indeed. These things have all been done in some yes. many, many times. Does that make, it, make a difference? Um, yeah, I do not ever look at uh, something that's a retranslation until I'm almost through with it. Mm. And I've just done a little translation for OUP of Freud's first ever case, the attempt at an analysis of hysteria, the Dora case which I had read it before, of course, but my word, he didn't know what women wanted. He thought that a girl of 13 or 14, the natural thing for her to do was to um, fall into paroxysms of lust when groped by an older friend of the family, which she did not feel like doing at all. <coughs> and Freud thought that proved she was hysterical. <laughs> and, but you didn't, you didn't read Stretchy when you, were, when you were working on that? No, I... When, um, 
um, we've got Otto Schoen here because you did some in the, in the in the new Penguin Freud. Um, yes, you did the one which has the Dora case in it. I when I, I was doing. So you didn't read Whiteside or or Stretch no, before no. doing your. Uh... No, I um when I my title was the psychopathology of everyday life, and I looked at the preceding translation only when I'd finished to see what that translator did. And I do know Freud assumed that, German, that French quotations in the middle of his German would be understood by everybody. But the editorial side thought that uh, they ought to be also translated into English, um, which I don't know what that says about the decline in the teaching of modern languages in English yes, schools. Or how we uh, underestimate But I, 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 I won't look before. I'm very close to the end in case of being influenced by somebody. Just very quickly on Freud, before we move off that, you say how you dealt with the ego, the id, and the superego. Well, I haven't had, in neither of the Freuds I've translated, if I had much of those, I think. um, I did have parapraxis, it was the existing (coughs) term for the famous Freudian slip, the failleistung literally a failed or incorrect performance or achievement. You set out to do something, and by accident you do something other than but related to what you mean to do. And I, incidentally, I thought, I was thinking about this, that yes, when you are translating the jokes and wordplay of Asterix, that sort of thing, you are trying to get the conscious mind to do what the unconscious mind does by accident. Hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a, non, a, a pun being a, a Freudian slip on purpose. Yes, yes. Hmm. And there are spoonerisms. Uh, Freud quotes several. He doesn't call them spoonerisms because he didn't know about Dr. Spooner. But, um, whenever I did one, I felt like ringing him up in Vienna a century <laughs> earlier, saying, look, here's another for your collection of slips. But I did not use parapraxis. We were all allowed the little luxury of a translator's preface to speak of any particular problems. But Freud is a curious one because there are, depending on which language he's been translated into, there are different ideas about how standard the vocabulary should be. In yes, France, there's a yes. particular, an argument which has been going on for years, yes. I think. Uh, gentleman in the front row. Um, hi. Um, my question is really about uh, musicality and the importance mm-hmm. of a, a musical ear when you're translating. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the tightrope walking you talk about comes in particularly in poetry, mm-hmm. which I, I've been trying to translate. Yes, yes. Um, French poetry, uh, paying, I think you have to decide whether you're going to mm-hmm. favour rhythm and rhyme, which to me seems often integral to the meaning yes. or sort of semantic meaning. And I'm wondering if when translating prose, for example, if you're translating Thomas Mann, there are some wonderful lyrical passages yes. in Death in Venice, and I wonder how conscious... Uh, that musical ear is. Well, it, it is for the translator of prose too. I mean, Max Zebot here, he is... Uh, his sentences have a wonderful rhythm and cadence. Do you read aloud when you're translating? In my head I do, yes, yeah. all you the hear, time. All the time, head, yeah. yes. Uh, other question? We have just a few more minutes right at back. Hello, I was um, very interested to hear you talk about the differences involved uh, in translating writers with varying degrees of proficiency in English. 
And I was wondering if you might talk about the differences involved in translating living writers and dead ones. Sorry, ah, living you... writers and dead writers. What's the difference between translating? Oh, living writers and dead writers. Uh, well, the main difference is you can't get in touch with the dead writers and ask what the hell they meant. Mm. And with Hoffman, I did that lovely last unfinished novel of his, uh, Life and Opinions of the Tom Gat Moore. And there were several little places where I, I was doing notes at the end, not footnotes, but end <coughs> notes. And I did not know what he was referring to. And I asked Jeremy Ardler, who was writing the preface to that volume, and Jeremy didn't know either. And I looked up about six complete German editions of Hoffmann, and those points I was after, every single editor with one accord, decided to ignore them. <laughs> and so when the Penguin uh, copy editor and then proofreader said, what does this mean? It needs a note. I could only say, I know it does, but I can't get in touch with Hoffman and ask him what he was meaning. <laughs> but, um, and living writers are usually very, very happy to, um, uh, to talk about their work. Hello, um, I'm from um, Edinburgh and I rather uh, liked your little well-remembered poem about Walter Scott having <laughs> fallen flat but for interest in the German uh, there's a wonderful Fontana who um, loved who's the um, German um, mm-hmm. uh, correspondent of the Zeitung or something yes. like that, and yeah. love to come to Scotland mm-hmm. to do all of Walter Scott. Mm-hmm. Walter Scott's usually gone into in being uh, into every other language. Mm-hmm. But my main point at the moment is, um, um, what would be your encouragements to um, the um, educational apparatchiks to um, bring in other languages in London and to get schools of translators or kids well into language before they are 10 so that they get spoken language early, not having to learn it late. Uh, what are your encouragements on the l- syllabus for learning languages mm. a, a early? And you might write a letter to Mr. Gove, what would you say to him? <laughs> I may say, Mr. Gove was once, when he was a Times columnist, columnist, he was on record saying that he couldn't see the point of reading translated literature. And I asked my son, who is a writer on the Times, please to take him to task about this. And, um, I think uh, quite a lot of people got in touch with Michael Gove about that. Of course, he left the Times when he got to be a prominent politician. But I... This is the same Michael Gove who has given a copy of the Bible to every school, the Bible which I believe was not. I believe, I believe, I believe. yes. <laughs> if anyone here can correct me possibly, but my understanding has always been that the Bible is uh, it's not it's not one of ours, really, is it? <laughs> there is the famous, I, I'm sure, apocryphal tale of the Midwesterner who said, well, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it was good enough for him. <laughs> I do think that the anniversary of the, the, the great King James Bible has perhaps done something for translation as a whole. I mean, if asked to name a favourite translation, and I'm not as it happens a religious person, but I love that book. It's uh, Once you have read the King James Bible, 
It's in your mental equipment for life. Mm. And I'm afraid if I have to listen to a reading from the New English Bible, mm-hmm. I've got this counterpoint going on the mm. whole time. I, I introduced an event about a year ago with Melvin Bragg talking about his book about the King James Bible. Mm. And in my introduction, I said that I, like many people, believe that there are two sort of classic cases of uh, English translations uh, surpassing in literary mm-hmm. quality their originals. And those two examples were the King James Bible and Asterix. <laughs> um, and I then said, and today uh, Lord Bragg is going to be talking to us about the King James Bible, and there was this audible sigh of disappointment <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the audience. Um, you lot, on the other hand, uh, got the, the even more important than the King James Bible. You got mm-hmm. to hear and to talk about Asterix and, and many other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are just about out of time, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say. Um, Kate is just going to say a few words about the, the, the series of which this is mm-hmm. sort of the first, though not quite officially the first. Um, but before we do that, I should actually thank the, the London Review of Books and the London Review mm-hmm. Bookshop for hosting this. I can't think of a better place for us to be celebrating mm-hmm. International Translation mm-hmm. Day. Um, this is a very good home for those of us who do, uh, who do this work. Um, but most of all, of course, do uh, please join me very warmly in thanking Alice Dicker and Thank you very much, and thanks, thanks to Kate, and uh, and thank you, Danny, and thanks to all of you for coming and listening. And thank you, Anthea, and thanks, Danny, who now I believe is running for a train. So, um, yeah, my name is Kate Griffin, and I've been working with the London Review of Books to um, program their new world literature series that we were talking about earlier. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to tell you a little bit more about what you've got in store over the next few months. Um, This World Literature Series is being run in partnership with the British Centre for Literary Translation, and it's with the generous support of the Kaluskill-Benkian Foundation and also Arts Council England. Um, The events will be taking place once a month, um, starting from October, and the idea of the series is to explore contemporary literature from around the world, but with writers and translators as our guides. Um, As with this evening, uh, the art of literary translation is at the heart of the World Literature Series. Um, So over the year, we'll be running a series of masterclasses led by a team of Britain's most distinguished literary translators, including Anthea Bell. And the first set of classes, which take place tomorrow... I'm sorry, they're already sold out. But look out for the next set of masterclasses, which will be on Saturday, the 2nd of February, um, when you'll be able to sign up for Russian with Robert Chandler, Spanish with Margaret Yulkosta, French with Daniel Hahn, or German with Sean Whiteside, who's sitting at the back. Um, The tickets for those uh, masterclasses will go on sale very shortly, so I'd urge you all to sign up for the mailing list, um, because... The set tomorrow sold out within a couple of days, I think. So, um, We also mentioned the uh, ever-popular live translation events. Um, you may be familiar with the format, as they were very popular at the World Literature Weekends. Basically, two rather brave translators go head-to-head with their versions of a text, exploring the nuances and variations and the very inner workings of the translation process with the chair, Daniel Hahn. And to add to the fun the author is on stage as well to join in. So on Friday, 26th of October, here, 
we'll be welcoming the Guatemalan author Eduardo Halfon, whose novel The Polish Boxer is just about to come out with Pushkin Press, and he'll be joined by two of his translators, Ollie Brock and Thomas Bunstead. We have another strand um, of the World Literature Series called Literary Friendships, which basically features Anglophone writers in conversation with international writers with whom they have a particular friendship or a bond. So on Wednesday, Wednesday, not Friday, um, Wednesday the 5th of December, Colm Toybin will be in conversation with the Hungarian author Lasno Kresenhochai, and on Friday the 11th of January, Tim Parks will be talking to the Swiss writer Peter Stamm. And finally, our Insights into Cultures strand will offer insights into the life in a particular country and culture through the prism of a contemporary writer. And in February, uh, on the 1st of February 2013, the Russian crime writer Boris Akunin will be in conversation with James Meek about how his writing reflects and interacts with literary traditions as well as Russian culture, history and politics. So that's the programme we've got lined up for you so far this autumn and winter. Um, if you want more details, please sign up to the World Literature mailing list um, via the bookshop's website. And I look forward to seeing you here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>